Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Information wars, a new front opens up in the conflict between artificial intelligence and traditional media as the New York Times takes on OpenAI and Microsoft in court. High style. Harry Rosen broke new ground for men's fashion in Canada. His grandson tells us about how the family business grew into an empire and navigated major changes in what dressing up means to men. Treatment plan, a doctor tells us about a monumental win in the fight against a flesh-eating disease that's been around for hundreds of years. But first, he says, people have to call it by its name. Need for speed. Paula Murphy drove faster than any woman who came before her, tearing up records in the 60s and 70s. And she never slowed down. As a documentary filmmaker found out, when she got behind the wheel with the trailblazing race car driver, who was 93 at the time. Up for cabs, a BC car enthusiast is now the proud owner of a yellow New York City taxi. He says Vancouverites are delighted, but also probably a little confused. And in a classic reading by Roque Carrier, a disappointed young Montreal Canadiens fan ponders whether a swarm of moths might be enough to destroy his hated Toronto Maple Leafs hockey sweater. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that habs to leaf that one to the experts. It's been a little over a year since the chatbot known as ChatGPT came out. And in that time, millions of users have been impressed and some a little unnerved by its ability to spit out whole pages of text that seem pretty close to, if not exactly, what you'd get from a human writer. The New York Times is less impressed. Today, the newspaper launched a lawsuit claiming millions of its articles were used to train ChatGPT without permission, amounting to infringement on its copyright. It's the first major American media organization to take action against Microsoft and OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT. Daniel Gervais is the director of the Intellectual Property Program at the Vanderbilt Law School. We reached him in Montreal. Daniel, we know that there, there have been reports up, coming up to today that the Times was in talks with the open AI makers for quite some time now. So were you surprised to see this legal filing and to see that this case is going ahead? Well, Neil, I'm, I'm not in the sense that there have been negotiations between uh, AI providers uh, such as OpenAI and large copyright owners for basically over a year now. And most of them have really not produced any results uh, so that this might just be a good way 
for uh, the New York Times to push on the parties to get to uh, a licensing deal, some sort of settlement uh, that might not otherwise happen. The Times, you know, when you look at the legal documents, the Times makes the argument that AI poses a risk to the paper's ability to do, quote, quality journalism. That phrasing, what does that tell you about the significance of the case? Yes. So what's noteworthy about this particular case uh, is not just that this is a very well-known plaintiff, but this is a case that's really not just about money. Here, the New York Times, I think having uh, learned from the other lawsuits that are pending, is making a broader case that they say it's not just about our bottom line. It's kind of the bottom line of society in a way that we need original, independent, investigative journalism. And all of that, uh, as the CBC knows very well, is mm-hmm. extremely costly. And this is the kind of thing that this case makes that previous lawsuits didn't. They're really targeting the fact that OpenAI and uh, Microsoft are creating competitive content. So basically, you could go to ChatGPT or Bing and say, tell me what CBC reported today that's of interest to me. And then, of course, ChatGPT does that, but then the person never goes to the CBC website or never listens to the CBC. The same with the New York Times. And that's kind of the issue that they're targeting here, that there's this competitive use of their content. And they're doing this, I think, very well. It's a very clever, well-prepared lawsuit. I wanted to ask you about the trademark issue, because the Times is arguing that AI is hurting their trademark. Can you explain to our listeners what they're saying in that argument? Yes, a very interesting claim. This is a fairly unique claim among all the other lawsuits. Uh, Obviously, the New York Times is a very strong trademark. And what they're claiming is that they've uh, reported uh, many cases in the in the complaint of hallucinations. When when ChatGPT basically invents uh, content, it also does this for sources. And basically, one example that struck me is they asked ChatGPT, "Give us the 15 healthiest foods according to the New York Times," and a list of 15 foods was produced, 12 of which the New York Times has reported as not being healthy. <sighs> And what they're saying is basically this tarnishes the trademark of the New York Times. And that's actually a claim that does exist under U.S. law. It would actually exist also under Canadian law. Mm-hmm. Tarnishment of a well-known trademark is, uh, is, is a claim that can be made that's entirely separate from the copyright claim. We did reach out to the New York Times, uh, as well as the newspaper's legal counsel today. They, they had no comment, but did pass on a statement to us, which, which says, quote, settled copyright law protects our journalism and content. If Microsoft and OpenAI want to use our work for commercial purposes, the law requires that they first obtain our permission, end quote. And they say that that permission clearly has not been uh, obtained. They don't talk about a specific dollar amount. They do say bill but ultimately, if OpenAI were to lose, what would that mean for the company? So it's it's quite common in the U.S. in the in the first version of a lawsuit to basically ask for everything that the statute you know allows a plaintiff to ask for. So they're asking for damages that can reach one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per article. Um, they're also asking for an injunction, basically forcing OpenAI to stop using the material. They're asking for destruction, which is Typically, what you see in copyright cases where you have, for example, you know, pirated DVDs or CDs, then you, you know, you'd want them destroyed. But, you know, this is an interesting application of that. So they're really throwing the book, but it, it's also understandable that they don't have a final number because they will only have a final number once they know exactly the extent of the 
infringement, and this will only happen if the case moves forward. How likely is it, do you think, that the Times will, will at least get an injunction and then further on win this case? Um, well, th- this lawsuit, I think, is crafted uh, in a way that um, makes it better than some of the other ones. Uh, and I think this one is, is uh, clearer, as a better target. Uh, an injunction is always difficult to predict because one of the four factors under U.S. law to obtain an injunction is the public interest. And I can see lawyers here on both sides making a claim of public interest. Um, so the New York Times say it's in the public interest for us to protect our, our, our business model, essentially, of quality journalism. And OpenAI, of course, is going to try to make the case that you know AI has societal benefits. Uh, very difficult to predict, but it would be a game changer if an injunction were to issue, and it's certainly possible that it would uh, before the end of the case. So this would be an, an injunction while this is being prepared for trial. So how long do you expect this to, to take to wind its way through the courts? I think an optimistic observer would say five years. Uh, I think it might be a little bit more. Uh, and I think that might be uh, too long for, for both sides. Um, strangely, both sides have a similar interest, which is that the New York Times has an interest in having uh, its news, its content uh, accessed and, and used by, by people. And OpenAI wants quality content to be available through its uh, ChatGPT and, and, and Bing services so that if they can see that they have a similar interest in getting the content to people, then it's really a question of uh, money and mm-hmm. uh, attribution. And I think that's probably the basis for a settlement at some point in the future. Daniel, I appreciate your time. Oh, you're most welcome. And uh, it's an important topic. Daniel Gervais is the director of the Intellectual Property Program at the Vanderbilt Law School. We reached him in Montreal. Google Noma, and the first results that come up are for an air purifier brand and the famed fine dining restaurant in Copenhagen. But the Noma that doctors and advocates want to bring to your attention is something else entirely. Noma is a severe disease, and those experts, including Dr. Mark Sherlock, have been urging the World Health Organization to give it more recognition. This month, that happened when the WHO announced that it was adding Noma to its official list of neglected tropical diseases. Dr. Sherlock is the health program manager for MSF's Noma operations in Nigeria. He's in Monaghan, Ireland today. Mark, what do survivors who you work with in Nigeria, what do they tell you about what it is like to have NOMA? Well, NOMA is a pretty awful disease and survivors talk about the stigma and the social exclusion that they face in their communities because of the destruction of the face. Um, And then you could imagine the the, the mental health and the the physical and mental struggles that come with that. The survivors talk a lot about the pain that they have, not just physically, but also also emotionally. And those are the survivors? Th- those are the survivors. Um, with Noma, 90% of those who contract the disease die within a few weeks. So only 10% actually go on to survive following the disease. And how many people does it affect around the world? 
the WHO estimate that there's 140,000 new cases per year, um, but this comes from an estimate from 1998, which is not really based on any scientific knowledge. A study by Medicine Sans Frontier in Nigeria thinks this number could be much, much bigger. Mm. But we need more research to actually find out the figures. And where is it most prevalent? Um, it's everywhere. It's mm. it's a disease that started um, first documented in Europe hundreds and hundreds of years ago and was seen in uh, World War II Europe. Now, most of the cases are found either in um, in Africa, parts of Asia and, mm. and Latin America. However, you do can't, you can see NOMA anywhere in the world if the conditions and the risk factors for NOMA are there. What are those conditions uh, and risk factors? It is a disease that mostly affects rural and disenfranchised populations, those living in poverty uh, with lack of access to healthcare and poor livelihood, so inability to generate their own income through, through jobs but also risk factors such as a recent infection, such as in measles um, or, or malaria, uh, per nutrition and per um, oral health as well, all kind of contribute, uh, putting that all together, contribute to the uh, the development of, of the disease. And it hits children the hardest, as I understand. Yeah, mostly, mostly children aged 2 to um, 5 or 2 to 7, and the vast majority will be in children. However, it does happen occasionally in adults, but normally those with what we called kind of immunocompromise. Based on the conditions and risk factors you mentioned, though, it sounds preventable. Yeah, it, it, it very much is preventable. If you improve livelihoods of people, improve access to health care, decrease if you can decrease poverty, it's a very lofty and big ambition, but if you can alter those in any way, you will see the eradication of NOMA. But linked but link to that, you can prevent at, the, at quite a more basic level is by looking in the mouths of children and screening children who um, present to healthcare or even in the community in areas that you know that have the disease. And by, by early treatment with very simple antibiotics, you can, you can stop the disease in its tracks. I wanted to ask you about the recognition and knowledge of NOMA because it's been around for hundreds of years, as you mentioned. It has a deadly uh, impact, uh, devastating for those even who are who do manage to to survive. So, why isn't it more widely known? I think because it it affects such remote and disenfranchised communities, those who who don't have a voice essentially, and and then with that, with the lack of knowledge amongst healthcare workers around the world. If a patient presents with it, they do not recognize it as being NOMA. They may think it is a cancer in the mouth or mm. um, a tooth abscess or, or, or a number of other things, but not NOMA. And and then that feeds, again, also into the stigma and the, and the lack of rec- recognition of the disease. But the recent listing of NOMA onto the WHO Neglected Tropical Disease List will have a big impact um, of, of the global knowledge of the disease and on the back of that, hopefully more people will actually know and understand mm-hmm. what this disease is. Well, it's it, it's so serious what, what we're talking about here and the realities. But, I, you know, as we talked about this story, people hear NOMA these days and, and they think not of, of, of this illness, mm-hmm. but they think of the very famous restaurant in Copenhagen. And I wonder how many yeah. times you're asked that or that comes up when you talk about this. It, it does come up a lot. And... Um, there's a survivor, there's a NOMA survivor um, network have just been created called Elysium. Mm-hmm. And one of the co-founders of that organization, Fidel, he talks about, when he speaks publicly, he talks about when you Google NOMA and the restaurant Copenhagen comes up and how for him, um, 
it is very hard to see that when you Google such a thing as such, such an impact on his life, a restaurant comes up. But that just that just that just shows the lack of recognition of of mm. of this as a disease. And but hopefully this listing on the WHO neglected tropical disease list will go on a, go a ways to actually change the narrative around the yeah. disease. And beyond changing the narrative, as you say, you hope it, it, it does, what can it achieve for you, practically speaking, on the ground? Can it lead to more funding or more programs? How will it help you beyond recognition? Yeah, it it, it, it doesn't automatically mean more funding, but what it does do, um, it does make NOMA more attractive to donors um, because many donors, specifically in the academic field, because we, we, we need to do more research on NOMA, um, they look to the, the, this list to to make it legitimate in their eyes to 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 fund a disease. So in that way, we we do hope that there'll be more recognition from a from a donor perspective for the for the disease. Um, but also, being on the list gives it that recognition that mm. we hope that screening, all screening, is incorporated into into programs, specifically around um, um, health programs that gets a lot of children together. And that could be like, for example, nutrition programs in many parts of the world or vaccination campaigns. So using that as an opportunity to look into the minds of children. Can you imagine a time where it's eradicated completely? I would like to say yes. Um, I think the international community need to work together now. And I think getting NOMA onto the list is we are, we are one mile down the road of an ultra marathon. But we, 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 are, we are now headed in the right direction. So I do hope that we can actually bring the international community together to actually to do something about this and hopefully within my lifetime um, eradicate NOMA. Dr. Sherlock, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Mark Sherlock is a physician and the health program manager for MSF's NOMA operations in Nigeria. He's in Monaghan, Ireland today. Paula Murphy was one of the fastest and boldest women of her era. The trailblazing race car driver whizzed across salt flats in a jet engine-powered car. In the 60s and 70s, she set records for women in drag racing, stock car racing, and transcontinental driving. And she did it all with panache. Paula Murphy died a few days ago at a care home in Arizona. She was 95 years old. Here she is in a documentary about her life describing her first time in a car. Never entered my mind that I'd be a race car driver. Not in a million years. My dad never drove. One day I decided I'm going to drive my mother's car. And we were down at the Cleveland Yachting Club. And I told my mother I needed the keys to the car because I wanted to get a sweater. So she gave me the keys to the car and off I went to the Ford. And I got in that thing, fired it up put it in first gear, and off I went. My mother thought the car had been stolen. And of course, she called the police. And fortunately, I got back down before the police caught me. <laughs> That's from the documentary Paula Murphy, Undaunted. It was directed by Pam Miller, and we reached her in Charlotte, North Carolina. Pam, when you hear Paula Murphy's voice again, what, what does it tell you? What did it tell us about who she was? It speaks to the title of the documentary, Undaunted. Nothing fazed Paula Murphy. 
no challenge was too huge, and she was always up for the challenge. She was a daredevil, a total daredevil in everything she did. Yeah, and from such a young age and even much later in her life, when you're speaking to her, you really still get a sense of that that energy, that verve, that drive, if, if you will. How old was she when you interviewed her? 93. She's 93 in that clip. Yes. What do you remember about doing that interview and her energy? She had the sparkle in her eye that you see in the old film that we dug up of her, whether she was on the salt flats, in a jet car, in the indie car. She had the sparkle. And she still had it at 93. She still had the passion. She still had a lead foot. She still <laughs> loved to drive fast. She was unfazed by the gravity of the situations that she was put in. And even at 93, 94 years old, she was full of challenge and yearning for more challenge. And obviously, she loved speed. And we heard in that clip that need for speed early on, stealing her mom's car, luckily not getting in too much trouble. But how does that morph into eventually becoming a race car driver? You know, it's really funny. She tells a story when she first goes to her first sports car race. And she was bored. She thought it was ridiculous. She hated watching it. And then somebody suggested that she tried to drive in a race. And from that moment on, she was hooked. And she honed her craft, and she learned that she was a natural. I mean, her mother drove, her father did not drive. So she learned a bit of driving from her mother later on, but really she was a natural. You mentioned the race on the Salt Flats back in 1964. Can you tell us what happened there and, and how she grabbed the world's attention? Well, that was a speed record that was in a jet car on the Salt Flats, When she couldn't reach the pedals, they had to actually put a pillow behind her. And I mean, think about this. She's in this tin car with a jet engine behind her in the vast expanse of the salt flats going 300 miles an hour. And she can't reach the pedals. And she's never been in the car before. And she gets in the car and just goes for it. And it's wet. And the car gets a little squirrely. And she's never driven anything like it before. And she sets a record. She did the same thing at Indianapolis when she got in the Novi for the four laps she was allowed to do, never having sat in the car before and being asked to perform at the highest level at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Well, you wanted to do this documentary because you felt not not enough people knew about what she had achieved, what she'd done, given what she was able to accomplish. Why do you think she wasn't more well-known? Well, she was well-known in the era. Mm -hmm. She was the woman that people looked towards to do things that women hadn't done before. She was also the first woman to get in a stock car at Talladega Super Speedway, which is a huge super speedway in NASCAR. And she actually did it twice and got in Richard Petty's car when she uh, did those laps. And we wanted to tell the story because she did these things without practice, without sometimes notice, and she was out there performing under pressure that if she had messed up 
at any time, whether it was on the Salt Flats or in Indianapolis or Talladega, there would have been a moment in time where people would have said, can women really do this? Mm -hmm. And because she was able to do it, women like Janet Guthrie and Lynn St. James and Danica Patrick got opportunities later on. You have some uh, old newsreels in the documentary as well, and just how she's characterized, how she's framed. You know, they're not being mean, but it's certainly of the time, and it's certainly sexist. <laughs> it's always about appearance and mini skirts, <laughs> and she's a homemaker as well. And it, you know, the way it's all framed. How did she deal with all of that while she was focused on racing? She was so about the opportunity. Mm-hmm. She kind of joked to me that as long as they were talking about her, she was okay with it. As long as she was getting opportunities, she was okay with it. She just wanted the chance. And she knew there was only so far she could go. She knew she wasn't going to be allowed to race against the guys in the Indianapolis 500 at that moment. But she wanted the chance to prove what she could do. You didn't just interview her. You, you got in a car. With Paula Murphy, and she she drove with that lead foot, right? What was that like? Oh, it was it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, I climbed in the back seat. We were doing an interview. She was in the front seat, and the first thing she did was hit the accelerator and do a burnout in the parking lot <laughs> and never lifted her foot off the accelerator. Um, I don't think she drove under 80 the whole time, probably closer to 100. She was still loved her speed and could still handle the car. And it, I'm I'm thrilled and so excited and and happy that I did it, especially looking back now. Thanks for this, Pam. My pleasure. Pam Miller is the director of the documentary Paula Murphy Undaunted. She was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Paula Murphy died late last week at the age of 95. <music> Every car enthusiast has a list of dream cars. For a man in Burnaby, B.C., one car topped his list. Ever since he was a child, Giovanni Porta dreamed of owning a yellow New York City taxi cab. Now he has one. Here he is talking about his dream car on the early edition in Vancouver. Well, I'm a bit of a car enthusiast, and uh, one of my favorite cars is the Ford Crown Victoria. Um, It's a pretty iconic American full-size sedan. You Mm -hmm. don't really see them on the roads these days anymore. And one of the most unique Crown Vicks that you can get is the New York City taxi, because at one point, there were thousands of these cars roaming the streets of New York, uh, and now there's only two left. The two taxis that are left in in, uh, New York City right now, uh, they have about half a million miles left on them. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So they've been driving for a very long time. The one that I bought, luckily, only had about 110,000 miles when I got it. So it was uh, a well-taken-care-of car. So I'd been looking for a while, and Mm -hmm. this one popped up on Facebook Marketplace. It was located in upstate New York. And when I saw it, uh, I called the seller. We had a video call. He showed me the car. And then I made arrangements to go pick it up in person and and drive it back home. So I flew to Toronto originally, and then I uh, took a road trip down from Toronto to Rochester, met the seller. We went to the DMV. 
got everything sorted. And then from there, uh, I drove home over a period of about five days. When I was a kid, I watched this movie called uh, Taxi back in 2004. And uh, that movie had the Crown Victoria taxi. And so I think that kind of set the foundation for my interest right. in, in the Crown Vic. Uh, so I watched that. And then on top of that, there is someone in um, Toronto who owns a Hong Kong taxi oh. that they've, they've imported from overseas. And so when I saw that, I thought, well, it would be really cool to get a New York City taxi here in BC. That's something that people don't really see very often, if at all. Well, when I drive it around, uh, some people realize it's a New York City taxi and they ask me questions about it or they're curious. I've had people think that I'm a New York City cab driver and that uh, I brought a fare over here all the way to Vancouver. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's other people who don't realize that it's uh, not a Vancouver taxi. So I'll have people who step out on the road in front of me. They try to hail me down for a fare uh, oh or they even try to open my door while I'm driving. Have you ever been tempted just to like say where to? I have. Uh, and in one case, I did. In one case, uh, there was a group of people and they, they needed to go home and it was only about a five minute drive. So yeah. I said, hey, you can get in. I'm not going to charge anything. I'll take you guys home. Oh, isn't that amazing? And, and they were super excited and they took lots of photos of the car after. and It was pretty fun. That was Giovanni Porta speaking with CBC's Stephen Quinn on the early edition. If you're looking for a Canadian tuxedo, anywhere that sells a lot of denim will do. But when many Canadians are looking for an actual tuxedo, Harry Rosen is likely one of the first stops. What started as a single store in Toronto eventually spread across the country, taking its reputation for high-end fashion and hands-on service with it. Harry Rosen died on Sunday at the age of 92. Ian Rosen is the president and chief operating officer of Harry Rosen, Inc. He's also Harry Rosen's grandson. We reached him in Toronto. Ian, I'm wondering when it first registered for you that, that your grandfather was Harry Rosen. You know, when did it click that he was this famous, very well-known name in this country? I think a teacher early on asked if my parents were going to bring him a tie or something like that. Uh, That's presumptuous. Uh, yeah, um, may maybe a, a joke or something. And I was trying to understand and put two and two together. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, my, my father was involved in the business. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot more Harry Rosen stores that, than there are today. So it, it wasn't a secret. It was actually something I, I almost tried to avoid for a long time. And so when did that transition happen for you, when you embraced that, that entrepreneurial spirit? Uh, I think at some point uh, it, there was a bit of a turn where I was just in such awe of what my grandfather had built. And I was really proud of the fact that my father was now involved mm -hmm. and was putting a, a new point of view on it and um, got me more and more interested in fashion and clothing, um, got to engage and, and work as a stock associate a few times at the stores and see you know, just how it all happened. And I, I think that's really where I got to understand just how um, influential my grandfather was and how many people just admired him. You know, he was my grandfather, but I, I never really had seen that side of him until I really, you know, saw it. Saw it up, up close, yeah. What did, I'm sure you have many, many conversations to draw from, personal and, and business conversations, but do you remember 
some of the things he told you when you were getting into the business, what he taught you about the business and what was important from his perspective? We've been hearing it over the last 48 hours. People just were so appreciative of the fact that Harry listened. He was curious. He wanted to get to know you, why you were doing the things you were doing. When I joined the business, I actually joined on the e-commerce side of the business, which was new for Harry Rosen. Um, You know, we're traditionally a store-based retailer, and it was an exciting new venture for us to be, you know, forging into the online world. And he was so curious about how it worked. Um, We actually would schedule retail walks where I would force him to kind of narrate what he was seeing as he was, you know, walking me through the store, and I would get to you know, really pick his brain on, you know, how the store was speaking to him. What are some of the things that he what he might do differently? On the fashion side of things, and especially men's fashion, uh, Bernadette Mora, who is the editor-in-chief of, of Fashion Magazine, she posted um, on Instagram this weekend, quote, retailer is too simplistic a word to describe Harry Rosen, whose love of quality menswear was infectious. He taught generations of clients and staff to appreciate superior fabrics and construction and helped build many designer names. And, and, and she goes on from there. What did he tell you about that time and that growth and developing what she describes there? Because it started with $500 in Cabbage Town on Parliament Street and then yeah. grew. What's that Malcolm Gladwell um, benchmark, the 10,000 10, hours? hours. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Harry spent 10,000 hours across so many parts of the value chain in retail. He wanted to know how clothing was made. He visited factories. He understood how to choose a fabric and a construction that was going to make a gentleman look a specific way. He invested the time there. Then he focused on visual merchandising. How was that going to show up in a store? How was it going to communicate to the client? How was it going to, you know, fit them? Then from a salesperson perspective, how are you going to romance this product? Put it on somebody, you know, convince them that this is a worthwhile investment. And then even on the tailoring side, the post care, how does it wear? Um, You know, how are the alterations coming out? I mean, there's so many people in our tailor shop that have worked with us for decades. Um, who over this weekend I, I spent yesterday in stores just speaking to customers, speaking to our team. And, and so many have such great stories about Harry taking interest mm-hmm. in what they were doing and learning from it. So those 10,000 hours were divided across the entire value chain. And I think that's what made Harry Harry. He was so in love with what he was doing. It didn't feel like work. And you talked about talking to staff uh, as well as customers in the stores. Many staff members, and we've heard from people who are clients of them, worked with the company for a very, very long time and still do today. What are, is there a story or two that stand out to you from your conversations with them this weekend? So many customers have this one story when somebody popped by and helped them fit a garment and you know walked them to the cash register and you know, only after the sale completed did they know that they just got fitted by Harry Rosen. And I tell you, that story is recreated like a hundred times. Entrepreneurs, especially on the scale of your grandfather's business and, and how he started, how detail-oriented, as you've described him, he was, they're consumed by their work, how much they love it and their business. But he also had a very big family, grandchildren, yeah. great-grandchildren. So what was he like as you're looking back on your time, your personal time together? What was he like as a grandpa? I think that thread of curiosity was always there. You could never tell that he was consumed with work. He showed up. We used to have dinner at his house every single Friday night. You know, he's very fashionable outside of the house, but he'd always wear very interesting colored sweatsuits inside the house, (laughs) a bright yellow or or something. Um, 
Were there expectations when you showed up to dinner about how you were supposed to dress? Could you come boring or okay? I could. I mean, I was probably wearing tearaways or something uh, at that that phase of my life. But um, he took an interest in, you know, my athletics. He took an interest in my my older brother is very into music. Uh, Harry loved to play the mandolin. He was very giving with his time. He was very curious about, you know, what directions we were taking in our lives. And he loved his great-grandchildren. Um, even in the later years, just putting one of my daughters on his lap made him light up. Is there you know, fashion and tailoring was such a huge part of his life and his identity and what we know of him. Is there a piece that you cherish that he gave you or that, that connects you to him? You know, he had, um, but it, it, it's not something that necessarily connects me to him. But whenever I think about Harry, I think about his iconic brown briefcase that I think he pretty much had since the day he opened the store. Um, and and I just can always picture him, you know, full suit, overcoat, and, and this really worn out brown leather briefcase in his hand. So, um I'm sure that uh, that's something that we'll keep in the office and, and make sure uh, is it, full of the right stuff moving forward. Well, Ian, I, I appreciate you sharing your memories. My condolences to, to you and your family. Thank you for your time. Thanks for allowing me to share. Ian Rosen is the president and chief operating officer of Harry Rosen, Inc. He's also Harry Rosen's grandson. For many Canadians, you only have to mention the hockey sweater and you get a smile. The story recounts a moment of great indignity from Quebec writer Roc Carrier's childhood with lots of heart and humor. It was made into an NFB animated short in 1980, and Roc also read it aloud for us here at As It Happens. Now, if you've never heard it before, you're in for a treat. And if this is an old favorite of yours, well, sit back. And enjoy it again. Here's Roc Carrier with his hockey sweater. The winters of my childhood were long, long seasons. We lived in three places, the school, the church, and the skating rink. But our real life was on the skating rink. Real battles were won on the skating rink. Real strength appeared on the skating rink. The real leaders showed themselves on the skating rink. School was a sort of punishment. Parents always want to punish children, and school is their most natural way of punishing us. However, school was also a quiet place where we could prepare for the next hockey game, lay out our next strategies. As for church, we found there the tranquility of God. There we forgot school and dreamed about the next hockey game. Through our daydreams, it might happen that we would recite a prayer. We would ask God to help us play as well as Maurice Richard. We all wore the same uniform as he, the red, white and blue uniform of the Montreal Canadiens. The best hockey team in the world. 
we all comb our hair in the same style as Maurice Richard. And to keep it in place, we used a sort of glue, a great deal of glue. We laced our skates like Maurice Richard. We taped our sticks like Maurice Richard. We cut all his picture out of the papers. Truly, we knew everything about Maurice Richard. On the ice, when the referee blew his whistle, the two teams would rush at the park. We were five Maurice Richards, taking it away from five other Maurice Richards. We were ten players, all of us wearing with the same blazing enthusiasm the uniform of the Montreal Canadiens. On our backs, we all wore the famous number nine. One day, my Montreal Canadiens sweater was... Uh, too small, then it got torn and had holes in it. My mother said, Rock, if you wear that old sweater, people are going to think we are poor. Then she did what she did whenever we needed new clothes. She started to leave through the catalog. The Eaton Company sent us in the mail every year. My mother was proud. She did not want to buy our clothes at the general store. The only things that were good enough for us were the latest styles from Eaton's catalog. My mother did not like the order forms included with the catalog. They were written in English and she did not understand a word of it. To order my hockey sweater, she did as she usually did. She took out a writing paper and wrote in her gentle schoolteacher's hand, Cher Monsieur Eaton, would you be kind enough to send me a Canadian sweater for my son, Rock, who is ten years old and a little too tall for his age, and Dr. Robitaille thinks is a little too thin. I'm sending you three dollars, and please send me what's left if there's anything left. I hope your wrapping will be better than last time. Monsieur Eaton was quick to answer my mother's letter. Two weeks later, we received the sweater. That day, I had one of the greatest disappointments of my life. I would even say that on that day, I experienced a very great sorrow. Instead of the red, white and blue Montreal Canadian sweater, Mr. Eaton had sent us a blue and white sweater with a maple leaf on the front, the sweater of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had always worn the red, white, and blue Montreal Canadian sweater. All my friends wore the red, white, and blue sweater. Never had anyone in my village ever worn the Toronto sweater. Never had we seen a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater. Besides, the Toronto team 
was regularly trounced by the triumphant Canadians. With tears in my eyes, I found the strength to say, I never wear that uniform. My boy, first, you are going to try it on. If you make up your mind about things before you try, my boy, you won't go very far in this life. My mother had pulled the blue and white Toronto maple leaf sweater over my shoulders, and already my arms were inside the sleeves. She pulled the sweater down and carefully smoothed all the creases in the abominable maple leaf on which, right in the middle of my chest... Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. Where written the words, Toronto Maple Leaves. I wept. I, I never wear it. Why not? Uh, this sweater fits you like a glove. Maurice Richard would never put it on his back. You're not Maurice Richard. Anyway, it's not what's on your back that counts. It's what you've got inside your head. You're never putting my head to wear a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater. My mother sighed in despair and explained to me. Rock, if you don't keep this sweater, which fits you perfectly, I'll have to write to Miss Eaton and explain that you don't want to wear the Toronto sweater. Monsieur Eaton is an Anglais and he'll be insulted because he likes the maple leaves. And if he's insulted, do you think he'll be in a hurry to answer us? Spring will be here, and you won't have played a single game just because you did not want to wear that perfectly nice blue sweater. So... I was obliged to wear the maple leaf sweater. When I arrive on the rink, all the Maurice Richards in red, white and blue came up, one by one, to take a look. When the referee blew his whistle, I went to take my usual position. The captain came and warned me I'd be better to stay on the forward line. A few minutes later, the second line was called. I jumped onto the ice. The maple leaf sweater weighed on my shoulders like a mountain. The captain came and told me to wait. He'd need me later on defense. By the third period, I still had not played. One of the defensemen was hit in the nose with a stick, and it was bleeding. <laughs> I jumped on the ice. My moment had come. 
The referee blew his whistle. He gave me a penalty. He claimed I'd jump on the ice when there were already five players. That was too much. It was unfair. It was persecution. It was because of my blue sweater. I struck my stick against the ice so hard it broke. Relieved, I bent down to pick up the debris. As I straightened up, I saw the young Viker on skates before me. My child, he said, just because you're wearing a new Toronto Maple Leaf sweater, unlike the others, it doesn't mean you're going to make the laws around here. A proper young man doesn't lose his temper. Now take off your skates and go to the church and ask God to forgive you. Wearing my maple leaf sweater, I went to the church where I prayed to God. I asked him to send as quickly as possible moths that would eat up my Toronto maple leaf sweater. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Nico Excel. And I'm Talia Schlanger. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.